This is an irreverent podcast. Check out irreverent.fm for shows from all our friends. First Corinthians warned you about the women with a loud mouth, and this podcast is just that. Here at the Speaking in Church podcast, we talk all about the regular people and the things that regularly happen to them in the evangelical church. It's a podcast about change, it's a podcast about seeking moral high ground, and it's a podcast for people who are just trying to deconstruct on the safe side. You can listen wherever you get your podcast, and if you want to be a guest, yes, you, regular person, you can be a guest on the Speaking in Church podcast. If you want to come on, just let us know. Hello and welcome to Exvangelical, a show exploring the world inside and outside the evangelical subculture. I'm your host, Blake Chastain. It's great to be back releasing new episodes and new interviews for you. This interview that you're about to hear was recorded back at the beginning of February with April Joy. April is a TikTok creator and her story is very, very interesting. I can't wait for you to hear it. More than likely, you are familiar with April's work if you are at all um, involved in the exvangelical deconstruction type TikTok scene or follow any of the creators there. April has had some incredible uh, things that she has posted over the last couple of years and her info will be in the show notes. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and get straight to this interview because I'm just excited to have the opportunity to share this conversation with you and get back on track with releasing some of the episodes that I've recorded over the past winter and early spring. You can find me on Twitter at BRChastain and on TikTok at BRChastain underscore. Same thing on Instagram at BRChastain underscore. If you want to help make this show more financially sustainable, please support it over at the Post Evangelical Post. Exvangelical is a production of the Post Evangelical Post. You can find that at, one more time, postevangelicalpost.com. That is hosted on Substack, and there are free tiers as well as paid tiers. You can support the show at 4 6 or $8 a month. More information about that is available once more at postevangelicalpost.com. This episode was edited by Elizabeth Nordenholt of Podcat Audio. All right, let's get right to it. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Exvangelical. My guest today is April Ajoy, who is a TikTok creator and also a podcaster at Evangelicalish. April, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. Thanks for joining me. I'm really happy to talk to you, and I've really uh, enjoyed coming across your content on TikTok, and I'm interested to learn more about your story. But I'd like to start where we sort of always do on the show, which is at the beginning. So where did you grow up and what was the sort of church environment that you grew up in like? So I'm originally from Texas and born and raised. My dad was a Pentecostal preacher. So he kind of co-pastored with my grandfather. My grandfather was also a pastor in the Dallas area of a pretty large church in the 80s and 90s. It had like 4,000 members, which was pretty big back then. You know, now there's like one of those in every city, but back then it was large and so I was a preacher's kid, but my dad was also an evangelist, as I mentioned. So I would travel. I was homeschooled for like up through middle school. 
and we would travel in a motorhome across the country. And my dad would speak in a different church most Sundays, and I would sing before he would preach. And I also had two brothers that I'd travel with within my mom. And so it was, especially once I got into like the teenage years, the motorhome thing wasn't so conducive. I remember being <laughs> very angry with my brothers because they'd snore and they'd be like on the sofa in the living room, which was two feet away from the kitchen where I slept on the table that folded into a bed. Oh, so wow. it's a very interesting, interest, weird upbringing. But yeah, but so uh, I would say I grew up purity culture, more on the Pentecostal non-denominational vein of evangelicalism, but also it was like worldwide. So we did a lot of mission trips to overseas. And yeah, like I, I knew that I wanted to go like be in full-time ministry when I grew up, like had, had the calling, wanted to sing. And then also when I got a little older, I was like, I, I, you know, I could go into ministry and be a reporter on Fox News. So there was a lot of conflating of politics with my faith. And in fact, in high school, I actually made a MySpace group. If you remember MySpace, oh, yeah. I made a group that was that the, the title of it was I'm a Christian, therefore I'm a Republican. Uh, yeah. So that gives you an idea. <laughs> uh, I mean, yeah, that that tracks. That tracks for yeah, sure. Yeah, <laughs> so super cringy. Uh, yeah, me now would not be friends with me then. So mm -hmm. weird. <laughs> but I mean, that's the case for a lot of us in this space, right? Like we, True. It's, it's hard to square, you know, what the sort of people we've become and how things how things have changed over time. But that's the fascinating part of, of these conversations to me, right? So a, just a, a little more about that. As far as like the Pentecostal upbringing, like I, my, my background is like Methodism and more like holiness traditions, which is much more, you know, much more emotionally restrained and different in some other ways. But as far as your Pentecostal experience, how was like gender norms and was, was there a lot of complementarianism as well? Or was it a, an environment where you as a girl and then a woman had had more agency in the church, I guess. Right. So I I didn't hear the term complementarianism until I was much, much older. So my like my family didn't believe in that. In fact, my my dad was probably a closeted feminist, although he would have never said that because I remember like being young and I was like, oh, I get it. Like the boys preach and the girls sing. And he told me like, no, girls can preach, too. So like that was embedded in me very, very young, but just because my immediate family was more pro women, like my parents still had very traditional roles. Like my mom, like constantly served my dad. So I saw that. And then also just the churches that I, that we went to, cause we visited a lot of churches and many of those churches were complementarianism. So I would hear things that were very sexist and misogynistic that other people would say going to women's events. Like I remember uh, going to a women's event when I was a teenager with my mom. I don't even remember what church it was, some random church and like a woman getting up and just talking about the importance of a woman, a wife fulfilling the needs of her husband, even if she doesn't feel like it because that's her godly duty. And just like, I don't know, like just weird things to just be like, just very like sex, hyper-focused on sex, but also super shaming of it at the same time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's that's quite a gift that that they developed um, yeah. in those churches, right? To to be obsessed with it and ashamed of it, ashamed of it at the same yeah. time. Yeah, and this you mentioned as far as your father was both a traveling pastor and also had this uh, work at like a home church. So was that yeah. just a lot of time on the road on weekends, or did you go on like 
longer treks than that. Yes, it was. So it was a weird kind of combo. My grandfather was a senior pastor, so he preached most Sundays, um, and we probably traveled maybe half of the year. So half of the year we were on the road where my dad would speak at different churches. And then half the year we'd be home. And when we were home, my dad would preach um, or they would split time or like my grandfather would take the first service and my dad would take the second service. So he he would be, I think they his official title was co-pastor. So it was like a weird mix of, I also got what it was like to be a pastor's kid and seeing like the same people every week and people treating you weird and like Mm -hmm. we I definitely have the complex of like we cared a lot of what people thought and image was super important like even if my family like I remember we talked about going to see a movie and my family was very cool with seeing movies but like there was one time my dad didn't want us to go see a movie at this one theater because it was close to the church and like he didn't want people from the church seeing us go to the movies (laughs) because even though we were cool with it he like there were people in the church that weren't cool with it so there were like things that we would do sometimes to like, so we don't think this is wrong, but those people do. So now we can't do it type of right. thing. Super, yeah. yeah, it's weird, <laughs> which I still have that in me now. Like there's still the, this piece that I've, I, I'm re- trying really hard to unlearn and like deconstruct, but I, I still care way too much of what, of image and like what people think just because it's how I was brought up. Yeah. A lot of self-editing and, and mm-hmm. making sure that you appear, uh, proper i guess with him yeah did you since you had this sort of half of the year on the road with your dad sort of did youth group factor into that at all i'm sure that would be difficult as as a pastor's kid if it did <laughs> yeah so so oddly enough my my story is very all over the place for my high school years we kind of planted so like my dad he went back into evangelism but we pretty much stayed cuz they wanted us to be able to go to school i also played basketball and so they didn't want us traveling because I ended up getting a scholarship to play in college. So like I needed to be in one place to play. But yeah, youth group. <laughs> when I turned 16, my parents bought me I Kiss Dating Goodbye by Josh Harris. Not because they agreed with it. They literally bought it so that I would know that there was worse out there. And if I didn't date the way they wanted me to, that they would take my dating privileges away <laughs> pretty much and like make me court. They're like, so we're going to be strict, but we're not this strict was kind of the idea. But the youth group that I went to, like their official stance was pro courting only, which courting is like, you're not allowed to be alone with opposite sex ever. You're always on chaperone dates and maybe handholding, but no kissing, like no physical anything. And I remember I started dating. I was a worship leader in the youth group and I started secretly dating the keyboardist. Yay. <laughs> I played bass. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Youth group relationships were just they're like their own thing. But anyway, I secretly started dating the keyboardist and one of the youth leaders found out and like kind of gave it, got us in trouble, but they were like, you know, our official policies were, you know, we're courting, we're anti-dating. So like, if anyone asked you're courting, but just like, they were just kind of like keeping on <laughs> the DL. Cool. Like they were like trying to be like the cool <laughs> youth leader, like, you know, like you're really not supposed to do this, but I'm going to let it slide. So <laughs> And the school that you ended up going to, uh, was, was that a Christian school or? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. I went to Evangel University my freshman year, which is an Assemblies of God school. And I played basketball there, but transferred because my, uh, (laughs) my coaches, my, the, the basketball team was just a little bit like hyper spiritual and Mm. 
like I, I went to a small school because I didn't want to sell my soul to basketball. And then I had like a, I had a whole food journal. I had to write down everything that I was eating. It was just like very intense for a small Christian college. It's like, no, thank you. But then I transferred to a different assemblies of God school. And it was like opposite problem. The, I, the team was fine and chill. The school was so strict, like talking about purity culture. They had a purity week, like official purity week for the whole college campus. And they had chapel twice a day, morning and night. It was mandatory. You had to go. And then at the end of the week, they gave a like alter- a day, five, five, five days a week, five days a week. So they had chapel every day on normal weeks in the mornings. And you had to go to like four out of five. That was mandatory before you would get on probation. Wow. But on the special week, they had a, a spiritual emphasis week, one semester, and then one semester they would have purity week and they had it twice a day and you had to go to all of them. And at the end of the week, they did a purity culture or purity like vow altar call where they had everyone come up that was vowing to save themselves for marriage. And they gave everybody purity pledge cards that you signed and you would check whether or not you were a virgin or secondary virgin. And then like, I vow to commit my, like to abstain from sex until I get married. And I mean, pretty much everyone went forward. Cause if you didn't, it, you're, you're, they were going to like put you on some blacklist to be on the lookout because you're going to think you're like a whore or something. If you don't go forward, just shame, shame, right? Just super. So yeah. Shame. And this was in college too. Like, yeah. Yeah. So wow. weird. that's the first I've heard of going to that degree at, at college. Like I went to Indiana Wesleyan and like they would, you know, continually talk about marriage at chapel and bemoan the fact that the number, the percentage of students that met at college were uh, and got married during college were was declining. Not, not that. That is. Did you have the ring by spring phrase there too? Yeah, and uh, MRS degree. You know, yeah, MRS. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Like that. Those those sorts of things were were definitely prevalent. I mean. I'm an elder millennial, so this was the early 2000s when I was there. So, but yeah, that is terrifying. I'm sorry. I'm sure that was not fun, like, for anyone. I don't know. I I think, I don't know if the, the people that put it on enjoyed it. Like, they actually seemed to really enjoy talking about sex. And then, like, you'd have, like, the people that were married that would get up to be like, sex is amazing. I love having <laughs> sex with my spouse and, like, my smoking hot wife over there. Like, but you guys can't do it. Bad for you but I love it. It's like, <laughs> they're like trying to be cool by like talking about it, but then like shame and every- it was, it's just such a weird dynamic. Yeah. Wow. So actually, you know, I, I actually want to go a, a different direction before I ask you where you, when you start really starting to question more openly mm-hmm. these things you have posted on your TikTok about your involvement in things like GOP politics and, and some of the other conservative initiatives. Could you, Talk a little bit about how how you got plugged into that because I I mean it's definitely as you mentioned like very much in in the ether it's in the environment everything's de facto Republican just but it, it seems that you actively participated and you know pursued that conviction that you had then so if you could talk about that and how your experience is there and getting plugged into some of those things sure so my my dad had helped run a couple Republican campaigns like back in the eighties. So he was pretty political, even though he wasn't like directly involved when I was growing up, but 
loved, still loved politics. So he would talk to me all about it. And I was like, I want to go into politics. So I was, I just was super into it with what I knew, you know, very passionately wrong on a lot of things, but thought I, but knew I was right in my head. And so like high school, I started trying to like getting involved in like debate classes, debate teams, uh, more like political activism, just like within like political clubs and schools. And then when I was in college, I, well, so high, senior year of high school, my dad wrote a book called America Say Jesus, which was just like the importance of um, like people need to start saying Jesus, not just say God, like define your God. And so he ended up going on the Jim Baker show because of his book. And I wrote a song that went with the book also called America Say Jesus. So I sing it on the Jim Baker show and Jim Baker is a pretty political Christian show. And so did that. We also did like a six month or a three month um, America Say Jesus caravan where we were in our motorhome bus again, and we drove it from South Florida all the way to California and then up to DC wow. with America Say Jesus all over the banner or like all over the bus. <laughs> This is a weird life saying this all like out loud and, <laughs> and like what short setting. Um, but yeah, so I was just always like really into politics. Um, in college, I like myself decided I, I went and saw the, I don't know if you saw the movie, 20 Obama's 2016 or 2016 Obama. Dinesh D'Souza made it. Yeah, I saw I saw parts of it. I didn't see. Um, I, I haven't seen the entire thing by any means, but I have seen. Okay, well, clips, I went and watched it clips. in the theater. Because okay. I, I was special. <laughs> and it didn't mean it is straight propaganda, but I bought it. I was so fired up after I watched that movie that me and my friends were like, we're going to go campaign for Romney. So I went to like a couple of his rallies and like we we made a YouTube video that was so cringe, but it looked good because we were all film students. <laughs> so, but oh, it was well, there you go. Very cringy. And then I ended up, I, I got my master's at Regent University, which is CBN, Pat Robertson School. And I got that in journalism. And then I ended up working as a producer for CBN a couple of years after I graduated. So just a lot of random things. Like we had Judge Roy Moore come and speak at our church at one point, uh, pre-scandal. Not that that makes it that much better, but it makes it a little bit better, <laughs> or at least before we knew of the scandal. So yeah, just, just very, I just wanted to go into politics and I was just very into it. And I was just, I, I, <laughs> I thought, I thought I would die a Republican. Like I had never not, I also worked for a Christian talk show that was a Republican conservative Christian talk show and like talked to Marco Rubio on the phone that we would have on back when he was seeing Congress then. So like a bunch of little random things. It wasn't like, yeah. So I, I don't know. I guess my dad kind of got me into it and then I just ran with it. Yeah. And you were following your you were following your convictions and what your upbringing and environment encouraged in that in that regard. Mm -hmm. What started to make you start to question? Because now you're known now you're known on TikTok for creating evangelical content with a lot of humor and a lot of well you and I should I shouldn't say evangelical content. You use the hashtag, but mm -hmm. that's not necessarily the label you may use for yourself. However, with that in mind. What were the sort of things that led you to start start questioning that? And yeah, just talk a little bit about that process. Sure. So I I've tell people that I've pretty much been like deconstructing and or questioning things for probably almost 11 years at this point. The first thing for me, which is why it's interesting when I meet people from like mainline denominations to know like what 
like, what was your first thing? Cause for me, the first thing I started questioning was like Pentecostalism in general, like specifically my dad actually died of cancer back in 2011 and we were Pentecostal. So we obviously like really believed in faith healing and like, I just knew that God was going to heal him. Like we all did. Like it, it wasn't even, we didn't even really talk about him dying. Cause it was just not, it was just, wasn't going to happen. Like God was going to heal him. And then God obviously did not. So like he was diagnosed and then died four months later, it was very quick. So that was the first thing that kind of forced me to like, okay, so just having enough faith does not guarantee that God's going to answer your prayer, despite like me being taught that my entire life. And it was really like the first, like hard, like really hard thing that I've had to go through. And it's to this day, it's like the hardest thing I've had to go through, but it was one questioning healing theology and like name it and claim it and like prosperity type gospel. And then two, just how Christians responded to me and how they reacted and like treated my family after my dad died. Like I had people tell us that he just died because he didn't have, because we didn't have enough faith or there was some unresolved sin in our life that maybe my dad had done that we didn't know about. That's why he died and why God didn't heal him or that God didn't heal him because my dad was like out of God's will. And there was just like cog this like cognitive dissonance that they would not sit with me in my pain. They were like trying to put like band-aid and like Christianese on it and like really hurtful things too. Like somehow blaming my dad's death on something I did or did not do. It kind of just showed like, and I knew they were shitty Christians, you know, like I had seen them my whole life, but it was the first time I was kind of like, this is really crappy. And, and I kind of realized, like, I feel like I may have responded this way to other people when they've gone through hard things just because I didn't understand. And so it just kind of made the small things really small. And, and I just kind of, I just went really introspective for a while, just kind of, you know, it just like rocked my entire world. So that was really the first big thing, but I was still like, I would still, still Republican, still going to church, still worship leader. The next big thing actually was one of my brothers came out to me as gay. And I mean, my family, uh, the, definitely the church that I grew up in was very homophobic. <laughs> so, and then my brother, you know, he grew up in the same household that I did. So him telling me that I've prayed mine, like since middle school for God to take this away, God would not take it away. I like obviously believed him. Like up until that point, like I was starting to question that a little bit, but I, there was no one in my life that was forcing me to question it. So I was kind of just like going with the status quo, but I had been taught that people choose to be gay, like out of rebellion or whatever. And, you know, seeing my brother in front of me, who I love tell me he did not choose this. In fact, he really wanted to choose not to be this, but can't help who he is was kind of like, okay, so that's not a choice. So then I immediately started questioning just my theology around LGBTQ issues. So, and so at that point I was kind of shifting, I was still Republican though, but I was shifting more like moderate Republican. So like that was in 2015 when he came out to me. So then 2016 would have been Republican primaries. And I, my favorite at the time was John Kasich, who most people would would have said was a rhino, you know, or more like a Democrat in hiding. So I was definitely more moderate at that point and just kind of starting to see things from another perspective. But I, I, I don't know that I would have realized, like, I would not have told you I was deconstructing, but even though I definitely was. Yeah. And that, that language wasn't, wasn't like 
you know, commonplace then either. Right. And and like, I wouldn't even have said I was really even questioning things. Like to me, it was just like my life experience has changed the way I think. And it's just obvious, you know, like I don't need to question these things like this. These things are just now wrong because I have seen something new. And really the next big thing, which I've heard from many, many people was a huge thing for the masses of, you know, more progressive Christians was just Trump and just the evangelical embrace and support and championing of him was bizarre. (laughs) Yeah. Just very bizarre. Absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, I remember when I was in college, it was when during the run up to the to the war in Iraq, like literally the second the second full week of college was when 9-11 happened. And that and that changed the tenor of of my Christian college experience. But for so many people, including me, is was that Republican was the only choice. And to the degree at Indian Wesleyan at the time, there was no college Democrats there was a college Republicans chapter that was decades old, but there was no college Democrats at all. And that's not to say that, you know, it's a, a two-party system and all these, you know, all these things. This isn't necessarily a political pundit show. But even, but the idea of potentially identifying with another party at all or uh, lending your lending your support to one felt damn near, her, like, heretical. Like, literally, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. Right, so, that's when you start getting called a baby killer. <laughs> yeah. Like just for even thinking about voting for a Democrat. Oh, so you like killing babies. That's mm-hmm. usually what they say. Yeah. Yeah. So I mean the the primary season was in in 2016 was it it felt to me similar to the like 2000 2003 2004 primary season but amped up and the evangelicals that I thought might have been softening and changing actually doubled down (laughs) yeah and like did not choose to follow the angels of their better nature so that seemed to that for you was the was was a major revelation as far as seeing the the outright support yeah i mean i felt like there were so many moments where i thought oh okay he's done now like this is the time where they're where trump's gonna lose the christian support and it seemed like somehow each time it just emboldened them to support him even more. And I I mean, I don't know that I'll ever fully be able to reconcile it. I mean, I can because I just think they're just not the best people, (laughs) which is why I am an ex-evangelical. So I would identify myself as that. But yeah, it was just clearly like, okay, so all this whole time when you're saying love your neighbor, take care of the poor and the marginalized and blah, blah, blah. I, I listened when you said that, like, I thought that's what we were all doing. But Clearly, that's not what we're doing if Trump is the person that we are not only like supporting, but celebrating and and like, and to, to some like elevating as God's chosen, like the amount of Facebook memes I have seen of pictures of Trump and Jesus together in paintings and drawings, unironically, is absolutely like the most preposterous thing. I'm like, Trump? Like, I mean, to this day, I'm like that the guy from The Apprentice that that's the one. (laughs) I mean, I when I really think about it, even now, I still I'm like, am I in another am I in a different timeline? What what's happening? (laughs) Yeah, there's this there's this new book out called Reality Plus, and it's all about like virtual worlds and philosophy. And the the author is writing about like the potential 
the simulation hypothesis, you know, of mm-hmm. are we in a simulation? And he's like, just imagine in the 23rd century that some people want to run a simulation of what it was like to live in the 21st century. Maybe they wanted to see, like, something crazy, like Donald Trump becoming president. <laughs> that <laughs> like, would actually make more sense. It, it makes more sense. <laughs> It's like the the gall of that of that author to write that. It's I I just read it last week and it's fresh in my mind because it it does feel absurd. It does feel absurd, but it is has been <laughs> the reality we've been living in for seven years now, almost oh, since, gosh, he, yeah. since he announced his candidacy. So, gosh, uh, it's like the tribulation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we should be at the end, right? Uh, we should yeah, be, we're, we're towards this, the end. Second coming. Sec- that's right. We're in the, the first the first half of the first three and a half years have passed. Mm-hmm. Now we're in the, in the tail end of the second three and a half years. We're we're gonna we're gonna make this make sense. Yeah. <laughs> I'm gonna become a dispensationalist again. <laughs> yeah. I guess I guess post trib, you know, is when the rest is actually happening after all. Yeah, yeah. I guess that yeah. <laughs> um, so what motivated you to start talking about these things publicly obviously you went through a lot in those intervening years that's all like grieving the loss of a parent the like a, a sudden a sudden death is something that's as you as you alluded to it's it's something that takes a long time to get over and if someone tries to mask that sort of raw pain as you said under christianese that is painful like mm-hmm. to have your to have your grief not be well cared for Uh, on top of all of these things relative to you moving to a new position in support of your your brother and your brother's humanity that's a lot to take on and to just process as a person first corinthians warned you about the women with a loud mouth and this podcast is just that here at the speaking in church podcast we talk all about the regular people and the things that regularly happen to them in the evangelical church It's a podcast about change, it's a podcast about seeking moral high ground, and it's a podcast for people who are just trying to deconstruct on the safe side. You can listen wherever you get your podcasts, and if you want to be a guest, yes, you, regular person, you can be a guest on the Speaking in Church podcast. If you want to come on, just let us know. And But eventually you also start to talk about these things publicly in a very public forum. TikTok is everywhere now. And I, I know, like, as far as timeline, we were just now talking about 2016, but even between those intervening years and everything, what led you to start wanting to talk about these things publicly and, and, and sort of, was it a desire to sort of process and share or, or what, what, what was the motivation there? I do think that, I mean, a few things. So the, over the few years of Trump's presidency, pre-TikTok, so really before 2020, before the pandemic, I would make Facebook posts and I wrote a couple articles on or guest blogged a few times on just, and basically my, my point was that Jesus is not a Republican and he's not a Democrat and he's not American. And to say that like someone's salvation or like someone can only be a Christian if they belong to like one political party in one country on the entire planet is ridiculous. So it was very much, it was still like middle of the road. Like I, I think I only like, I I did make an anti-Trump ish post one time, but it was still very mild because the people that, 
that I saw, the things that I saw them post about Trump was like mind blowing, just mind blowing. I got put in a private Christian group. I think on that, like they didn't know I was anti-Trump and it said like United Christians for America. Like it's a group for Christians to pray for America. So I like accepted, this was way, this is back in like 2015 probably. And then it just like turned into just a pro-Trump Christian group. So I saw the most bizarre things in there. I was like, <laughs> what is happening? So I, so I would start posting on Facebook every once in a while, just kind of like my thoughts and blogging. And there was like, I would say it was like 50, 50, 50% of people were like, Oh, this really resonates with me. Like I right on, like, I'm there with you. And then the other 50% would be like people from my dad's church growing up or like family members that thought that Satan had gotten a hold of my soul and I was being like led astray. I got a, a couple of comments or private messages from people that were in my dad's church that said my dad would have been like disappointed in me because I didn't vote for Trump, like my late father. So like the audacity, right? So all that to say 2020 hits pandemic, we're all home quarantined. I also have two kids. So I had heard of this TikTok, you know, it's a, it's like a kid fun teen dancing app is what I thought it was. <laughs> so yeah. I had like seen some people talk about it. It's like, oh, we'll download TikTok and see what it's about. And like, I probably had it on my phone for probably a month before I even did anything with it, just kind of figuring it out. And so I made some like fun family mom videos, like the first few times. And I was like, oh, this is kind of fun. And then I made one video in May of 2020. And it was kind of more of just a way of releasing frustration that I felt like I couldn't say on Facebook because I know people on Facebook and I was just getting mm -hmm. tired of people I know, like thinking I'm demonic now for really <laughs> stupid reasons. So I was like, oh, let's just, let's, let's just put it out to the strangers on TikTok. And I made a video, which basically it was the gist was when you're a Christian who doesn't like Trump, you get kicked out of the club. And it went like really viral and got almost a million views. Wow. And most of the response that I got, well, I mean, I got a lot of hate too, but most, I would say like probably at least 80% of the comments were other Christians saying, oh my gosh, me too. I thought I was the only one. And so I realized, oh my gosh, there's a lot of people out there that are thinking like I do that think this is ridiculous that these Christians have like just fallen over backwards for Trump. And so I just kind of slowly started making more like political stuff and just more ex-evangelical stuff. And that was also during like the Black Lives Matter protests and George Floyd mm -hmm. and all that happening. And so I went to a lot of local protests here and filmed the counter protesters that were protesting our protest. And we were protesting, like we were trying to get our Confederate statue to move to a museum which was a pretty good compromise, but they thought the Marxists were taking over. So they got really mad about it. Man, I wish the Marxists would take over. <laughs> <laughs> I know. So they were, they, like, I would literally just take my phone and I would record these white people just scream absurdities and racist, racist things towards like our Black Lives Matter side. And then I would just post it on TikTok and they would go viral. And so like, people, then I got get, I would get death threats locally. So that was, oh that gosh. was like a whole other thing. So I was also, so I do think 2020 like really accelerated the deconstruction between like seeing, there are a lot of like white pastors that showed up to the protest too, that would, were saying just racist crap. Mm. That was like Europe, like, and people would, we, I live in a small town. So people would recognize 
the pastors or the worship leaders and like, oh my gosh, like this racism runs deep. So between that and then just the pandemic in general, like the way that evangelicals have treated that as a whole, like being anti-vax, refusing to wear masks. I was like, ah, what is happening? This is not like, I was still going to church up until the pandemic. Like we stopped going to church because of, because of Rona. So 2020 was a huge, like, I, I would not have considered myself an ex-evangelical going into 2020. And by the end, I was like, I, I don't think I want to go to an evangelical church anymore. Like, I don't, I have no desire to go back. So what was that? Was that the question? <laughs> yeah, no, I think that, that it, yes, yes, it was. Yeah. And that so, was, and so anyway, could, could you tell I'm from that? I'm from the Midwest. I say, yeah, no, sorry. <laughs> 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 yeah. So anyway, so that's how I kind of started getting on TikTok and then mm-hmm. just found a community there. And also humor is how I cope. And like, I do think there's, there is a lot of like really heavy stuff that comes with leaving the church and talking about deconstruction and, and like, I mean, religious trauma is a very real thing. And so I, you know, I found myself relating with a lot of accounts that do talk about that in a serious way, but I am a very like humorous person and so for me uh, it's it's a def- humor is a defense mechanism and it's how I just cope with trauma <laughs> so I just I think it's also just like we lived through some really bizarre things growing up us millennials in evangelical circles and we I think we I think it's okay to laugh about it and and I think too like growing up in the church I don't know if you were ever told this but I was always told like don't make fun of God's anointed like, don't, like, you don't touch pastors, you don't touch Christian things, you don't want to do anything that could make Christians look bad, because it might hurt someone's faith. Mm. And now I'm like, screw that we do Christians do ridiculous things, and we can make fun of it. And so that's kind of what I do. <laughs> yeah, and you do it very well. I mean, I, I, I think one of the first ones that I came across was last year when David Jeremiah and some other people were trying to badmouth and appropriate conversations about deconstruction with with their audiences and and you made a very funny video you know with with multiple evangelical pundits like Kenneth Copeland and stuff oh. <laughs> uh which was really really great and it, it it crossed over like I'm for better or worse I'm primarily on Twitter and that crossed over and made the rounds on Twitter and was incredible and I think humor is definitely something I think it's a great outlet and the the fact that you you're able to poke fun at these things is really you know validating and the fact that we it's a really weird subculture and it's not even really Mm -hmm. a subculture when it's at one point was a quarter of the population it's like just a culture at that point (laughs) it's such a weird thing that if you've lived it it sort of lives in your brain and in your body forever (laughs) like right (laughs) well and I think too like there's some really cult-like things about evangelical spaces that when you do decide to leave it or you do decide to question it, you're suddenly almost like you're blacklisted or excommunicated. That, yeah. Have like you heard the, the, have you heard the phrase uh, holy ghosted? I don't that's No, I, but that's amazing. <laughs> yeah. I I don't know where I first heard it, but it is the perfect summation of, of that experience of being sort of if you leave a church and you lose your social circle overnight, that's painful. Yeah. Not only do you lose it, but then suddenly the people that you love look at you like you're some like project now in need of mm. saving or you're demonic or you're, ugh. I mean, I've been called like 
ridiculous things. It's like, I'm still the same person. If anything, I'm a better person now. And it's just ironic that the church now looks at this group of people that have left as, oh, we're the problem. Instead of looking introspectively at, oh, what were the problems that made the masses leave? But they don't really look inward. So that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> say more about that, actually. Let's uh, say more about they don't really look inward, because I think that's a very good insight. Where where have you seen that sort of on display? Yeah. So like, gosh, I mean trying to think of like a specific example. I mean, there's so much, I mean, just in general, like, so my whole life really, like I've seen churches split in different churches. I've seen dramas unfold. And anytime someone would leave the church, especially someone that was really well-known in our church, everyone that stayed would badmouth that person. Mm. Oh, that person was this, that person was just causing division. That person, their heart wasn't right. They were led astray and all these things. And, and what I'm realizing, and I should have been asking, like, in those moments was there, no, like, why did that person leave? Like, what caused that person to leave? It's not just that person. It was never, it's, it's always every single time I've seen a, someone leave a church, that person has always been demonized in some way, if it, if it wasn't like a, a cordial, like mutual thing. And it's never been I rarely have seen a church own up to, well, we did something wrong too. It's always the person that leaves that is demonized. That just, I, I think that gets at the way people that now speak out and use terms like exvangelical or use, use tools like a hashtag like deconstruction or exvangelical or any other, any other ones to, to talk about their experience. That's, that speaks to why those conversations often don't have any purchase within evangelicalism until someone finds themselves on the outside themselves. Like I, yeah, like here's, here's an example, like an actual example. Now that, Mm -hmm. now that I've had time to think about when I was growing up the church that my grandfather pastored, he'd given it to another pastor. That pastor ended up having an affair with the secretary and it, the information leaked somehow. And everybody demonized her and she ended up being like basically kicked out of the church. It was framed as she was some, you know, like Jezebel spirit that seduced the pastor against his will, even though it was like an ongoing affair that he was a mutual party of. And he ends up keeping his role in the church and she is banished. She loses her job because of, you know, I mean, she was mixed in it too, but then the people that left over it, it was never because they left, oh, because the pastor made an aff- had an affair. It was they left because they're following that same Jezebel spirit because they're following that girl and they were deceived. So it's like, I mean, that's just like one small example that I'm sure happens all the time. Yeah, yeah. that That's definitely a pattern that has emerged, right? Unfortunately, mm-hmm. because they can escape accountability or consequence. So sorry for the hard segue here <laughs> oh, you're fine. The, the quick how do you how do you feel about things now as far as you don't you don't have to have a definite answer but when you when you think about your place in either just for yourself or in relation to communities how do you look at things now do you do you sort of still use a christian framework are you sort of in a in a place where you're comfortable not having anything in particular I don't, I, again, I don't think there's any sort of wrong answer. I I like to affirm that there's lots of valid paths out of evangelicalism, and there's not a single one. 
But I think it, it's always enlightening to understand and hear other people's stories of how they process. So given this tumultuous few years we've been going through personally and social uh, as a society, wh- where are you landing right now? I love that you asked, where am I landing right now? Because I feel like it is a very fluid thing. For now, I I would still call myself a Christian, as in I still follow the teachings of Jesus. And I've definitely had moments where it's like existential crisis. I don't know if I believe any of it. I definitely have issues with like the Bible in general and still working on that. But at the end of the day, I feel like I am a better person, like trying to follow the Jesus, like the teachings of Jesus, like there's value and good in that. And how I'm kind of viewing life is I don't think it necessarily matters or I, I, I don't believe it matters what I believe because that's a, it's an intangible. I, I think what matters far more is what I do and how I love and how I treat people. And so like just trying to be a good human at the end of the day and just to do the best that I can, which is really loving your neighbor, like Jesus said, but it's just, it's just out of the framework of church. Like I, I feel so much more freedom now than I ever felt in the church. And I, and I feel like a better human now that I'm out of the church, if that makes sense. Like, I feel like the church inside, you're always told how to love instead of like, just loving like oh you can't love that person because you might be enabling that person to da 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 or whatever we're now like the parameters are off like I can just I can just be friends with whoever I want to be friends with I don't have to worry about like saving them from eternal damnation because I also don't believe in that anymore um you know like so I'm just I'm being content with not knowing things which is a very new outlook but it's a it's kind of freeing and refreshing in a way because so much of like my evangelical beliefs were like so black and white and like I had to know that I know it's like no I I don't have to know and it's okay if tomorrow I feel completely differently so I don't know if that answers your question no I'm I just think kinda... no it does I I don't this this is not a show that looks for for that is fishing for a particular answer it's it's always really um interesting to hear how people are processing. Yeah, I'm I'm still working on it. I'm a, I'm a working <laughs> process. <laughs> we we all are. We all are. What do you think the value is of of having having these some of these conversations and online? That's something that I'm thinking about a lot is the way in which these some of these people have been leaving evangelicalism for decades. But what feels interesting and unique and different about this moment is the way in which these stories are now taking place. You have and and you are participant in that, excuse me, as through your TikTok and and through your podcast and any other means you might be doing. So, how do you feel in relation to that? What do you think the value is in the sorts of conversations that we're having now in public? Yeah, I, I mean, I think the conversation is super important just because I think, you know, I mean, this is, it's not anything new. Like you said, like people have been leaving evangelical spaces since evangelical spaces existed, but it's important. I think because, you know, we mentioned earlier, it can be a very isolating experience when you leave, but being able to have these conversations so publicly, I, you know, I I hear from so many people, I'm sure you do too, where they, they, they literally thought they were the only ones like there, or they are the only ones in their spaces, like in their family 
in their church that they know of because it, churches are not safe places to talk about this. Like I know I've gotten messages from pastors who are actively deconstructing and kind of in similar spaces that we probably are, but are still pastors and don't know what to do about that because that's their livelihood and they're currently pastoring. So it's just like giving people the freedom to hear from other people that are going through similar things and going through similar thought process that can just not feel so alone because it can be very, it can, it's, it can be really lonely. And, and I do think community is so important. I mean, that's one thing that we're taught so much growing up in church is like, you have this almost like this larger extended family that you see every single week, which I don't, not that I necessarily, it's obviously not the healthiest, but I, I, there's value in, in just being in community, even if it's virtual. So I, I don't know. I just think there's a lot of healing and hearing from other people's stories. And I think it helps people that are still in the church. Cause I don't think not everyone that is still evangelical is like, I, I mean, I don't think anyone is necessarily like a bad person. Like there's so much indoctrination that goes into it. Like just your average churchgoers, I, you know, it'd be good for them to see if, if they can, like if they have the eyes and the ability like to see and to listen, just that like, we are normal people that really loved the church and really loved God and Jesus and like thought that was our calling. And we are just realizing that it's just not it. And this is why, and it's not some evil demonic takeover. You know, it's, it's just humans that saw a better path for them. And, you know, I just, I, I think the conversation is just really important. The problem is a lot of the people that need to hear the conversation, you know, are too busy demonizing us. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Which, which leads me to want to actually call back to something you were talking about earlier, which is that in the past you were writing these, writing essays, guest blog posts, and posting on Facebook to your Facebook friends about things within the confines of evangelicalism. And now you are making content and speaking to it from outside it. So since you've gone through this process and are on both sides, I think that's a very under valued asset of people that have gone through these these experiences because you have developed a, an ability to see both sides of things and you've existed in a very indoctrinated very partisan sort of space and now you now you've changed your mind do you think what are your thoughts about the way these conversations can even happen within evangelicalism and what are some of the ways as someone who now speaks publicly about these things that we can, you know, signal to to people, this is why you left or why all these other people left? Well, it's, it's really hard because there's so many conspiracy theories and people that are just, in some ways, they seem too far gone. (laughs) There's just a fine line because, you know, you've got like QAnon on like one extreme of evangelicalism because they've got sucked into that. But I do think like I try to, I try to look back at moments in my life where someone got through to me and those were, and the things that worked for me, cause I can only speak to my own experience that, and it's not even that it changed me overnight, but it was just like little seeds along the way that when big things did happen, I was able to like, Oh, Oh, this was what so-and-so was talking about. Like five years ago was just people asking me questions like People trying, like if, if, if I were having a conversation with an evangelical that was still in it, I think my approach would 
if they were actually willing to talk to me. My approach would just be to ask them questions and try to get them to explain the things that don't make sense because they can't and they'll get flustered, which was what happened to me. But then I went home realizing I don't actually have an answer to that question. And, you know, most of the time I would just kind of, well, I'm not going to think about that again because that's going to, you know, unravel everything. But I, it made me think about it for a moment. And the more often that that happens, at some point you're going to hit a breaking point and realize this doesn't make any sense. <laughs> but I don't, I don't know. Honestly, that's like my, I have a hard time loving people still in the church that are like so dogmatic. And it, it's probably like, part of it's probably like a guilt that I have too, knowing that I used to be like that. And it just, it makes me so angry sometimes, you know, I get told I'm going to hell, like on the daily, you know, which I know why they do it. I, and I get it. So it's, it's like, I don't even really take it personally. It's just more annoying at this point. It's like a little tick, like, okay, yeah, I, I know why you're saying that, but I don't know. I don't know. It's just so hard because there's, <laughs> yeah. everybody's different. Like in some, like every, for me, it took, it took, it took the little seeds, but then it took a really drastic, like personal experience before I really had empathy for other people or before I could even like imagine what it was like to be someone else. So, and, and I do think in general, conservative evangelicals, like very much lack empathy. Like that one pastor, I think James White, like tweeted that empathy was a sin and was like a tool of Satan. Some of them are just so far gone. Like, I don't even, I don't even know how to handle you. And that's, that's very, very well said that empathy is sort of taught to have limits. Like if it goes against what, what is taught in the church, not necessarily whether it's biblical because that, that's maybe not as important as whether it's, as whether it's within evangelical practice. Yeah. That's, that's very well said that, that empathy is something that, you know, because of, I, I can't really add to that. That's very, very insightful. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, I don't know. It's, it's wild out there. <laughs> <laughs> That's how yeah. I feel about it. <laughs> I, as I mentioned, I, I've really enjoyed discovering your content on TikTok. The the one you recently did responding to an, uh, yet another ridiculous assertion that deconstruction is sexy was very funny and where can people find your content? Where can they find anything else you might be up to online? Sure. So uh, if you have TikTok, I am at April A. Joy. That's A-J-O-Y is my middle name, April A. Joy. Um, or on Instagram at April A. Joy. I'm also on Twitter, but I don't have April A. Joy on there because someone else has it. So I'm <laughs> at April A. Joy R on Twitter. Or I also co-host a podcast called Evangelicalish where we pretty much just like rail on evangelicals every week. <laughs> so. Yeah. There's a lot to rail about. So yeah, it's endless. <laughs> That's right. Well, April, thank you very much for joining me today. I really enjoyed yeah. this. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. This was fun. First Corinthians warned you about the women with a loud mouth, and this podcast is just that. Here at the Speaking in Church podcast, we talk all about the regular people and the things that regularly happen to them in the evangelical church. 
It's a podcast about change. It's a podcast about seeking moral high ground. And it's a podcast for people who are just trying to deconstruct on the safe side. You can listen wherever you get your podcast, And if you want to be a guest, yes, you, regular person, you can be a guest on the Speaking in Church podcast. If you want to come on, just let us know.